everyone, and welcome to our podcast on queer women's health. Before we begin, we'd like to provide a brief content warning. In our discussion today, we talk about some difficult experiences faced by queer people, and also make mention of homophobia and sexual assault. If you feel this may be uncomfortable for you to listen to, we encourage you to stop the podcast now. We hope that many of you feel okay to continue listening as we explore this important topic. Hi everyone and welcome. I'm Emma Payne from MedFem and I'm here today with fellow MedFem Publications and Promotions Officer Sarah Robinson and also with B. Carr, the Engagement Officer from MD Queer. We'd like to start off by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on which this podcast is being recorded, the Rwandri people of the Kulin Nation, and pay our respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. This podcast is a joint venture by MD Queer and MedFem, two student-led organisations at the University of Melbourne. MD Queer is a group for medical students with an interest in LGBTIQ and queer health issues. We aim to create a network of medically-minded students for education, advocacy, policy development, socialising, support and professional development. MedFem is a female and non-binary collective for MD students that aims to improve well-being of female and gender-diverse medical students doctors and the population at large by holding networking and educational events, sharing resources and advocating for change. We have joined forces today to shed some light on a range of topics regarding queer female health. In this podcast, we will also speak to Dr. Ruth McNair, a pioneer in the field of LGBTIQ medicine in Australia. She will be able to share insights into this topic from a clinical perspective, drawing on knowledge gained from years of experience. Throughout this podcast, we use the term queer as an umbrella term to describe people who are diverse in gender and diverse in sexuality. And as such, we'd like to begin acknowledging that queer was not originally this term and was originally a slur. Therefore, some people may not identify with the use of this term and would not choose to describe themselves as queer or use any labels at all. However, for many people, the term queer has now been reclaimed as a term of empowerment and is often used as a sort of inclusive umbrella term to refer to a range of sexualities and genders. This is the manner in which we use the term as a label inclusive of all non-cis and non-hetero identities. We'd also like to address the fact that this is a podcast created in Melbourne, Australia, and emphasise that different states of Australia and different countries will have different laws and healthcare systems, as well as different re recommendations regarding vaccinations, investigations, treatments and protocols. Furthermore, we urge you to visit a doctor you are comfortable speaking with if any of the content of this podcast brings anything up for you. Our content is intended for the purposes of education and spreading awareness. We encourage you to seek personalised healthcare from a professional for anything you are concerned about. Overall, we have a few topics we wish to cover. Initially, we will speak about the experiences of queer females in accessing healthcare, and more specifically, accessing sexual healthcare. Following that, we will speak about medical school, with a particular focus on the teaching of women who have sex with women relevant topics, as well as exploring the experiences of queer med students. With each topic, we will first introduce the situation with some context, some facts, and some common myths as well as hearing about some real experiences gathered from the survey that we conducted prior to this podcast. For those who want to continue their learning and read further on these topics, we'll go through our resources at the end of the presentation. We will endeavour to make this podcast uh, have varying levels of content sets to make it medically relevant to all different levels. We'd also like to outline the group we will be focusing on today. This is a talk for woman identifying individuals and is aimed primarily at that demographic. We do hope that trans men, non-binary individuals and allies may also benefit from this information. The talk will primarily centre on women with vaginas. But once again, we acknowledge that not all women have vaginas, some have penises and some have a combination of both or neither. Today, we will do our best to convey information in a way that can be useful for anyone. So before we start, we'd each like to explain why we chose this topic and why we think it's important. So I, as a member of MD Queer, um, looked at the events that we had scheduled for the year, and they seemed to be primarily aimed at queer males. So we had a HIV talk. Um, we did have some transgender health talks coming up as well, 
But once again, we didn't really have any topics focused on queer women at all. Um, and I remember in my first year of medical school, when we were in our reproductive block, all of the sexual health that was queer focused, or even in general, was on men who have sex with men. And I remember a lot of like my queer friends, specifically my queer female friends, feeling very ignored. And it seemed to be a common theme throughout like LGBTQI education. What little education we did get from the medical school seemed to be only focused on HIV, to be honest. And that's why I thought that there was definitely a need that was not being met through MD Queer and through the medical school. So I thought the best thing to do would be to touch base with MedFem, um, a female empowerment society, and get them on board as well, as most of the members of MD Queer, unfortunately, are male. And to do this type of talk, it's really important to be using female voices to empower themselves and not have a male voice. Emma, would you like to explain why you chose this topic? Yeah, well, I really agree with everything that you said. Um, definitely, it's an area that's ignored by the medical curriculum. And I think also on perhaps a more personal level, uh, the proportion of queer med students is often not recognised. And I think that it's a population that um, perhaps isn't as vocal, like you said, in the female queer community. Uh, and maybe just some of the comments that have been made. I know that some of my friends have experienced from peers and from staff have been quite derogatory towards um, LBQ women because they didn't realize that uh, there is that population that exists within the med community. Um, so definitely it's something to go over in that regard as well. And it's been really interesting to see the responses from our podcast and our, our survey that we conducted. Sarah, mm. what did you think? Well, for me as an ally, um, I definitely feel it's concerning thinking about a future of medicine where we graduate as doctors and we haven't been taught um, how to approach um, queer sexuality in any way, really. Um, and I know that if I was sitting in an office in the future and I have a patient come in, I want to be able to best deliver healthcare for their situation. And I feel that I don't have that um, education at present. So I was really excited to collaborate on this podcast because I felt it would be a great learning opportunity for me and a, also a great opportunity for um, other people to access the kind of information that we haven't previously. There's one thing I'd just like to add quickly that I missed in my part is not to sound too much as like a male voice speaking for female experiences. Um, but I had quite a few bisexual female friends who at that moment were, had male partners and or um, were seeing males. So they really didn't feel like it was their space to talk up and that they didn't feel that they were valid queerly if they weren't, you know, actively dating a female at the time, which, you know, I thought was really quite like a terrible thing that you kind of have to like prove your queerness. Um, so I really thought it was important to like get some bisexual female voices in this because they really are just so drowned out by others. Absolutely. We now have the pleasure of introducing Associate Professor Ruth McNair. Dr McNair is a highly accomplished doctor who is a fellow of the College of GPs at Northside Clinic who has a PhD in lesbian and bisexual women's health and is an honorary associate professor at the University of Melbourne. She was in, inducted onto the Victorian Honour Roll of Women in 2017 and appointed a member of the Order of Australia in 2019. Before we dive into the main, contact, the main content of the podcast, we have a few questions for Dr McNair right off the bat. So, Dr. McNair, can you tell us firstly a little bit about yourself and how you got to where you are today? Yeah, well, I started I started out wanting to be a paediatrician, actually, and thought I'm missing out on all these women's health and gynae, and I thought, no, I'm missing out on all the men <laughs> and the kids. So then I realised I was into general practice, which I really like. So, and then I was very generic, I guess. So I worked in rural practice for a few years, five years, uh, and then moved to the city out in an LGBTI inclusive practice. So I started seeing loads more lesbian and gay women actually, and bi, 
and a few gay men and then realised that really there was so little research or advocacy around LGB health but I wasn't seeing any trans people. And I thought, no, this is a great space for me to build my skills in research and in advocacy. So there you go. And that's 25 years or something until now. Well, excellent. I guess well, that kind of feeds on to our second question is, um, although you said a bit that you kind of, that's how you got into advocacy, but um, uh, what kind of was the driving force, do you think, in uh, like becoming a doctor firstly and then also from that not everyone who sees inequality chooses to deal with it so why was that the driving force for you? Uh, to because I wanted to make a difference and I think any anything you do in medicine has that capacity but you know specifically around LGBT health I mean I just felt there was so little knowledge out there you know I would see I don't know a lesbian who wanted sexual health advice and I'd go and look you know I saw this huge number of people with mental health issues and started questioning what was going on. And really, and at that, or at least medical education at uh, one of the medical schools in Australia. So I just melded the two things to do some education around this and also build some knowledge with my research. So, you know, I just like, I suppose, and that's comfortable in, and also being a queer woman myself, you know, I felt, quite a empathy with my patients uh, needing to know more about I felt really annoyed that there was so little education in the area both for med students and uh, practicing doctors so we've spoken a bit about the um, not labeling things as queer issues um, but we do want to try and make sure that our practices are welcoming as safe as possible for queer women as well mm -hmm. um, how do you think we're best able to do that as future doctors uh, to make a practices safe and queer friendly. Mm. Yeah. Well, informing us, clearly, you know, there's more and more evidence now related to LGBT health. So being sure that we're up to date, because I think many of my LGBT patients, um, they've done their research, they've looked online about their particular issue and they come in with knowledge. And if we have a lower level of knowledge, that doesn't go well. <laughs> it looks well it just looks like we're not taking the effort you know we're not being good to understand their particular health needs so you know I think that's the first thing being well informed and course or postgraduate professional development then we can seek it out ourselves and I think this is difficult for some mainstream providers because they don't see that many LGBTI patients and or they don't know they see them so the incentive to upskill is lower than it might be for a, a population group that you see a lot. So I think, I mean, encouraging LGBTI people to be more open with practitioners is also helpful. It's a two-sided issue, really. You know, we, we have to be as appropriate and up-to-date as we can on the medical side, but then I think patients need to, or with us, give us a chance so not assume that we're going to be negative or judgmental. We mm. hope for the best. If I talk to patient groups, they'll say, well, that's not fair because we're disempowered and it should be entirely up to the doctor to create that environment. And up mm. to so we have to make the first move, creating our, our clinical environment to be as inclusive, you know, ask mm. questions, being open to facilitating disclosure where possible uh, but then there does need to be some give and take from the patient as well so I think it all yeah. it all works well if if we can start the process and then encourage patients to be open and start trusting us absolutely it's a two-way street That's yeah a very good point um Excellent. So I guess that for those of us who maybe don't see that many um, queer patients and aren't that well versed in um, ways to best deliver appropriate care, what do you think is the best way to refer to uh, queer friendly services? Yeah, well, I think that works well in urban areas because increasingly we've got really good LGBTI specific services, you know, through the AIDS councils, uh, through some community health centres, we're seeing LGBT inclusive well, specific services, uh, a few more trans-specific services now, like Equinox, 
and a couple of clinics in Preston and Ballarat, but you know, actually there aren't many services in the outer urban or rural areas. So I think just practitioners, it's all up to them. You know, they really can't refer out to someone a long way away who's LGBT specific, unless there's an issue that just can't be dealt with by their own practice. Yeah, so I think, I mean, referring specific services great. Another thing that's emerging is communities of practice. And that's a way to, I guess, talk with other health providers who do have more LGBTI patients and raise particular case issues to discuss and learn about. An example is the Mind Out that's been happening through the LGBTI Health Alliance. So this is a program specifically related to LGBTI people and mental health, but it's a great way for practitioners to link up together and talk to each other, which I think is then building expertise and building, building confidence in seeing more diverse LGBTI patients. Mm, we've got the name of that, the Health Alliance. Um, so the LGBTIQ Health Alliance, what was the name of the... Um, uh, so it's the National LGBTI Health Alliance. It's called Mind Out, M-I-N-D-O-U-T. Mm. Great. It's been running for about three or four years at least. And they have mm. regular webinars, but also this community of practice where you can just send in questions and get feedback from people. Mm. I know the Victorian government have funded a similar community of practice for people delving into trans and gender diverse healthcare because mm. there's been so a push to more trans care in primary care and mm. less less regarding it as a specialist health. So this is developing a community of practice for people who are starting to do more trans care. And that will be a really great way to, to build skills and knowledge. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I guess when we're talking about um, in like primary health and dealing with career issues in primary health, uh, it'd be really interesting to hear a bit about um, how your involvement with the Northside Clinic. Yeah, so um, I've been involved with Northside since we set up uh, 11 years ago. We just had our little birthday, yeah. virtually. <laughs> um, and we set up as a general practice in a, in a North community area. Area, but with a focus on LGBT issues and we have a lot of sexual health generally uh, increasingly a lot of trans and gender diverse care and I've been doing a lot of LBQ women's health for a long time around parenting sexual health etc so I mean we're a bit of a model I wouldn't say we should replicate this everywhere actually I think it would be better if primary care is inclusive so that a person could just go anywhere to their local clinic and feel they had care but it expertise amongst the doctors that come and work with us we do have registrars so we've, over the years some of them have actually stayed with us but others have gone on to work elsewhere and so they've built their knowledge because they've been seeing a lot more LGBT patients than they might have elsewhere so that's some well, for us, I think it's not, as I said, possible to replicate it all over the place. It's better if doctors, wherever they are, can develop their skills. But I mean, on the on the personal side, it's a great place to work because half of us are queer and half are straight allies. So we're just, I guess, constantly supported in our relationships with each other and we can talk you know, on a professional level, but within the practice about concerns we have about patients or, you know, if we have knowledge gaps, we can try to fill them within our team. We'd like to now introduce our first major topic, accessing healthcare as a queer female. Unfortunately, the medical profession is not immune to and or above having homophobic practitioners. And there are minimal safeguards and that would prevent a person who hold homophobic views from becoming a medical professional. As a result, negative experiences among the queer community and the medical community are rife. In our survey, we asked respondents to briefly outline their experiences in accessing healthcare. 
in general, society is moving towards being much more accepting of queer identities. And so we certainly acknowledge that older generations may have experienced an even greater history of negative interactions with the healthcare sector. Sadly, we know that the AIDS pandemic of the 80s and 90s has an ongoing influence on societal views about queer people and contributes to the stigma and taboo regarding non-heterosexual practices. One of the respondents echoed this when they responded to a question about negative experiences, stating that, As a doctor myself, I've actually heard other healthcare workers, especially nurses and midwives, talk about how all gay people are going to hell and that gay people deserve HIV because they're immoral and stuff like that. It has therefore made me super reluctant to disclose my sexuality and I've actually never told my healthcare providers like my GP or even psychologists for fear of their reactions. Furthermore, it's worth bearing in mind that homosexuality used to be considered a mental illness and thus treating mental illness would have been the domain of medical practitioners. Thankfully, in 1973, the Australian and New Zealand College of Psychiatry declared that homosexuality was not an illness and became the first such body in the world to do so. Whilst that was nearly 50 years ago now, it is clear that some doctors still feel uncomfortable in dealing with queer people and that many automatically assume that their patients are heterosexual. This places patients in awkward situations and is not conducive to creating a positive doctor-patient relationship. We're now going to go through some negative experiences of queer women when getting consultations. It's always a big step to drop the she, her pronouns when talking about a partner. I did when talking to my GP the other day for the first time. I was trying to normalise it by not making it a big deal, but yet by not coming out as bi at the time, I risk further confusion in our next consult. I've had many experiences that have not necessarily been wholly negative, but have had to deal with some ignorant providers who use outdated terminology or will group me with a sexuality I didn't actually disclose that I identified with. For example, I would talk about a female partner and they would assume and talk about me as a lesbian rather than queer, like automatically assuming that I have no male partners. And they also seemed extremely uncomfortable and uneasy when talking about this subject. I was seeing a GP to ask for advice on using contraceptives as treatment for my painful periods. He started by asking if I had a boyfriend. When I said no, but I have a girlfriend, he got incredibly uncomfortable. He said, what is the nature of your relationship? When I asked what he meant, he said, well, what do you do together? Is it a sexual relationship? Not only was I incredibly uncomfortable, but he then proceeded to tell me all about how each option worked as a contraceptive without going into any details about how it could be used to treat my periods. I have been pressured into getting a marina for contraception due to an inadequate sexual history and not given the space or time to talk about my sexuality and its impacts on my sexual health in that respect. So we briefly mentioned before that negative experiences can greatly impact how someone accesses healthcare in the future. This can have many ramifications for their health in terms of wanting to seek help for serious issues or not disclosing information that may be important for diagnosis or treatment. I am reluctant to have to go through the whole process of finding practitioners who are truly LGBTQIA plus friendly, especially in regards to mental health. I will try to look up beforehand if they or their clinic has specifically stated that they're queer friendly or if I'm in a different area to my regular GP and need to see a doctor, I'll keep the consult as brief as possible and only disclose information that is necessary to get what I need. Yes, I now have a tendency to not see the same GP more than once due to concerns regarding judgment and stigma. I don't tell any healthcare workers I'm gay. Yes, I'm very reluctant to present to new healthcare providers and I always research any new health service I plan to access to ensure that they're trained in LGBTQ health or have the rainbow tick, etc. Many of our respondents stated that they prefer to access healthcare that is overt in displaying its acceptance of queer identities. Through measures such as looking for rainbow flags and rainbow ticks or any other LGBTQ promoting um, stickers or flags, as well as checking online whether or not they accept queer people in one of their brief descriptions of their practice and their practices values, as well as asking other queer people for recommendations about queer friendly practitioners. So what do you think are the benefits to queer people in accessing healthcare that is tailored specifically for queer people? Look, I think there are a huge amount of benefits 
the main one is understanding context. So as a GP, I like and understanding the person in their real life, you know, who they live with, who their partners are, what they do day to day for support. The relevant when you're thinking about an LGBTI person and it might be mental health, it might be sexual health, it just might be anything to do with healthcare that needs social support. So I think all of that is relevant. You know, I often do training with doctors and they'll say to me, oh, look, I don't think I need to know sexuality or gender because it's not relevant to their health needs. You know, they've got a broken leg, I fix their broken leg. So I say, okay, up to a point that, yes, you just get on with it. But even in emergency, there's a need to understand the context. You know, how did that come up? What's going to happen when the person leaves the emergency department? So I think, you know, even an emergency, people feeling really vulnerable and not knowing whether they can be out to their provider, uh, whether they can introduce their partner in that situation, whether there's someone who's legitimate. So, you know, that's so often the case that people either don't go to help worried about all of those things about being discriminated against or not understood or they present really late uh, you know another example it's not a pathological thing it's just around parenting you know I see a lot of lesbian bi and gay parents and some in, and people aspiring to be parents and they often talk about partners and whether the partner or the non-birth parent will be involved and allow system altogether and it becomes a really difficult uh, challenge for those people who don't feel like they can connect or ask questions or be fully involved and that's not mm. appropriate you know as doctors we need to be as open-minded as inclusive as possible um, to engage with everyone and needs to be involved with their supporting around healthcare so I don't think we can make any excuse targeted health promotion and I've seen this in my work with lesbian bi women and trans women and alcohol use I've done some research in that area and that the health messages around alcohol use that are targeted to the heterosexual community just don't work for LBQ women you know they don't resonate uh, and women don't really take them on board we see lots of alcohol use in the LGBT, yet we don't quite know how to tackle it from a community perspective. So, you know, I think there's a lot of evidence now that we need to target health promotion, whether it be, you know, drug use or just general health care, so that it's specific to, and it might have to be specific to lesbian women and then specific again to same-sex attracted young people, another level for trans people, Mm, absolutely. I, I guess that because um, we've heard you speak before at some of the MedFem events about that really important issue. Um, and I guess just for our listeners today, uh, could you please just talk a bit about how we can tackle those issues that are seen um, with a higher prevalence in the lesbian community, like smoking or, um, uh, you know, there's different incidences of um, drug use and mental health concerns that aren't tackled by um the regular heterosexual advertising campaigns. Um, mm. How do you think the best to tackle these concerns in the LGBTIQ community without labelling them as queer issues? Mm. Well, I think that's the first point, not to pathologise it or assume someone's queer and therefore they're going to drink it. The other way around, you know, picking up, I guess, cues from people about their mental health or drug use. Could it be related to your queer identity or your trans identity, you know, is there anything that connects these two things? And for some people there isn't, it's nothing to do with it. Uh, people it is around experiences of abuse or about um, that doesn't feel inclusive. So understanding that context of the drinking or drug or abuse uh, first as a individualized approach, you know, how does it affect this particular person? Then diving in, if it does seem to be to then asking about how can we improve what's happening? How can we change the way you cope, your coping mechanisms that, uh, and also especially how do we find appropriate counseling 
that LGBT inclusive, you know, I've talked to so many people who are willing and able to see a counsellor, but are really worried the counsellor will focus in sexuality or gender identity as the issue instead of the behaviour or the the trauma that a person's experienced. From the responses to our survey, we found that the majority of respondents have undergone STI screening and many have had positive experiences with investigations. The Melbourne Sexual Health Clinic in particular comes with really excellent recommendations. However, unfortunately, the history-taking aspect seems to be an area that definitely needs improvement. There's quite a few negative experiences when accessing healthcare, specifically talking about their sexuality being mainly assumed and having to correct the doctors, unfortunately, and or being too scared to correct the doctors. They assumed my sexuality. My regular GP initially asked when I first started consulting her. Every other healthcare provider I've interacted with has assumed I'm straight, including when my appendix burst and the team looking after me were convinced I was pregnant. Um, a few doctors have positively asked, which is good. However, um, that doesn't seem to be the majority of cases, which definitely needs to be improved. And one or two of our respondents have straight up just told their doctors because of previous negative experiences, they've just felt it's better to get it out of the way. One or two have also mentioned about getting a pre-filled sheet and how they thought that was a really positive experience so they didn't have to have that awkward initial conversation with the doctor and that it allowed for more free time in the consultation to talk about the specific events. Do you want to just explain to us what a pre-filled sheet means, Bede? Okay, so with the pre-filled sheet, it's pretty much when you go to any new um, doctor practice or anything. So they just have a little form to fill out. Um, a lot of the times, just your name, Medicare card. Um, if you're an international student, I guess there's the international areas like Bupa and all the other ones, insurance policies. Um, you tick agenda um, a great one will have other that you can fill in another great section will have pronoun use which is really important um, the gender identity of your partners the activities so anal oral um, vaginal um, whether there were toys um, whether there was barrier protection contraceptive protection um, just really getting a thorough list and a lot of the really good ones will also just have a little section down the bottom where you can fill out something that you thought was missed. Mm -hmm. I'm really interested by this because I feel that it has great potential, but is there ever a situation perhaps where if you haven't met that doctor before, revealing so much of your own personal information um, would be uncomfortable if you haven't decided whether that person is someone you can trust with your gender identity and with your sexuality? What do you think about that? I definitely agree. I mean, I know personally with these forms, I'm so lazy with them. Especially <laughs> if I don't know the practitioner, it's very much when you meet them, you kind of get, it's bad, but I feel like a lot of people relate in the first couple of seconds with the practitioner. Mm -hmm. They get a good gauge on whether or not you think this consultation is going to go well or not. Um, so I personally have had like negative experiences with doctors. So for stuff like this, if it wasn't at a queer friendly practice or like a headspace mm -hmm. practitioner, I probably would leave out certain points. Yeah. Um, and then if I felt comfortable enough with stating them, I would mention them. If not, because I do have a little bit of medical experience. I will tell the doctor what I sure. want. Mm -hmm. Emma, do you have any thoughts? Mm. Um, really disagreeing what, with what you guys are saying. And also, um, whilst it might increase the speed and efficiency of, uh, of your GP time slots, which I know is a, an important thing in many practices, um, it does really remove some of the personal aspects, which I think you really need to be able to get some people to open up about uh, these personal issues, like you guys are saying. Excellent. So yeah, I guess moving on to accessing sexual health specifically as a queer female or woman who has sex with women, which is mm -hmm. a mouthful of a phrase. Yes, <laughs> um, yes. uh, excellent. So we've talked a little bit about um, how for some people now, survey they, they have great um, experiences at places like the Melbourne Sexual Health Clinic or Northside, 
um, and they've had the Great History taken and had all what they feel to be the relevant investigations. Mm -hmm. um, but many have also had terrible experiences and sometimes haven't, one said that they've never even had a sexual history taken before. <laughs> Um, right. Another one is that the, the providers have never asked about their sexuality. Um, uh, though one said that their providers have never asked about their sexuality, but have asked about the gender of any recent sexual partners. Um, and we were just wondering what your uh, what your opinion of that particular approach is. Well, I think with sexual health, that behaviour than identity. So it's much better to ask about gender of partners, how many partners, and then much more specific detail about what, because that's the only way you can make a judgment on what, what testing to be done or what are the risky behaviours and what aren't risky and help provide information to people. So I think this goes against, a little bit against what I was saying before about needing to have the full context for a person. I mean, as an LGBTI uh, specialist, if you like. I assume that people are comfortable with their sexuality and gender identity, but actually people could be anywhere. For many people starting out, not not just young people, who are starting to consider a more sexuality or gender identity, you know, they're still grappling with it and they still need confirmation, I guess, from other people about... And so that can open up a discussion with people about you know, what are their pros and cons of identifying as gender diverse versus or bi versus lesbian, queer versus pansexual. You know, there, there's so many uh, and diversifying amounts of identities out there. Mm. It is confusing, just not only for practitioners, but also for people who are experiencing this in their lives. So I think more broadly, not just about STIs, it's a really useful role that a doctor can play in that and, you know, working it through with a person and helping legitimise it, helping legitimise the journey as well, not just the answer. So there's a lot of myths surrounding LBQ women's health and um, STIs, one of which I've heard is actually that STIs cannot be transmitted between lesbians because they both have vaginas. Uh, could you please ah. tell us a little bit about how <laughs> this could happen? <laughs> Well, how many bugs are in vaginas, really? There's about a million. <laughs> so, I mean, these myths have built over many decades. Uh, lesbians don't have sex either, apparently, <laughs> according to some people, not real sex. So, okay, I think training in med school has been much better lately around STIs and what people do with what. Uh, but basically, yes. STIs can be transmitted. The rates are very similar to heterosexual women. The main difference is the types of STIs. So, you know, for women who have sex with women, it's all about vaginal bugs such as candida, bacterial vaginosis. They're really high, very high concordance rates between regular partners. Mm -hmm. uh, and also, obviously, herpes simplex and human papillomavirus are very transmissible with uh, women's sex so these are all things that are really important to screen for i mean it's also possible to transmit cervical bugs like chlamydia or gonorrhea so they should be screened too but yes focusing in on high vaginal swabs and a good visual examination of the vulva to be sure there's no herpes or warts you know these are all things that are really helpful i mean fortunately now the new cervical screening campaign has for the first time ever included lesbian, bi and trans people with a cervix in their high, mm. high risk groups or vulnerable groups. So for, for a change, we have some actually direct uh, health promotion from that cervical screening program for this group, which is great. Yeah, that's a really great uh, new initiative. Um, I guess on, we've spoken a bit about the, which STIs we should screen for and when we have sex with women, but something that we haven't been able to find easily um, through the normal routes is how often you think uh, women have sex with women should be tested. Yeah, well, we're sort of uh, using principles that we've used with gay men. So once every three months is pretty average if people have a few partners or are using risky sex, uh, that seems fair. 
but it's not quite so clear cut. I mean, that is really based around HIV, syphilis, Hep B transmission and the time for blood-borne viruses to reveal themselves through antibodies. So I think for women, and it's about vaginal screening, it's more related to what they've done when with who and what's risky and doing screening based on those behaviours rather than having a, a specific time frame. Mm, excellent. Um, uh, I guess we'll just quickly while we still have time on that as well, um, does that any of your practices are following general rules, but do you specifically go for different guidelines when thinking about um, transgender women or female partner who um, uh, is trans or uh, people who um, have sex with who are bisexual, for example? Hmm. Again, I mean, we've got some good data now from the transsexual health study that came out last year. So that's helped us to understand the types of STIs uh, trans folk are getting because we didn't really have much evidence before that. Uh, but really, you know, this is coming down to what bits people have and what they're using, what goes where, basically. So, you know, for a trans woman with their neovagina, sometimes the vaginal uh, tissue is very fragile and there's a slightly higher chance of having uh, bacterial vaginosis, for example. So they need to be aware of that. If they're having sex with a cis woman, it's possible to transmit that. Uh, yeah, for trans men who may be having a lot of anal sex with a cis male partner, again, that changes risk dramatically and we need to know what's happening and what's not protected and then be able to uh, screen through anal screening and also bloodborne virus testing. So mm. I think it's really an individualised approach with understanding what people do. Now I'd like to have a bit of a chat about our experiences of um, female sexuality being taught in medical school. So Bede and I are both in second year at this point and we're supposed to be in our clinical rotations, but <laughs> COVID-19 has had a way of interfering with that. Um, so we're at home making this podcast and um, looking back on our first year in MD1, um, we, I guess, feel that we weren't taught adequately about female sexuality and I guess diverse sexuality beyond um, heterosexual practices and also some, I guess, very uh, stigma-inducing stereotypes. Um, what, do, what do you think, Bede? Yeah, I definitely agree. I mean, there were aspects that weren't too bad. We did have a practitioner from the Melbourne Sexual Health Clinic. Yeah. Um, I did really like him. Like any straight male that can drop the term bottom is like <laughs> a-okay in my book. Um, but once again, like I get why he focused on men who have sex with men. Like I'm not offended by that because I know the STI populations are large and the representation, they're like overrepresented, I guess you could. Mm. But I do definitely think there could have been more. Like, there were certain aspects that weren't bad, but there could be more. And, like, queer sexual health shouldn't just be focused on, even though in our talk we do talk a little bit about it, um, STI. You know, mm. There should be more. Yeah, definitely. And I think we've already spoken um, amongst ourselves about, you know, not intending this podcast to be a critique on the med school. It's just... Um, our experience of feeling that perhaps we wouldn't be fully prepared for um, providing medical advice um, given what we've learned thus far. Um, and we'd like to hope that um, in future years we learn a bit more about this sort of thing. So I guess we can hand over to Emma on that as she's a couple of years ahead of us in the program. Yeah. Yeah, so... In MD4 now, um, looking back on it, we thankfully have had more education. So MD3 has some great modules delivered during both the general practitioner term and also during the women's health um, intersection block. Um, uh, I thought they were amazing sessions and done really well. I do, though, think that it's kind of absurd that, you know, during non-COVID times, MD2 is normally around the hospital and not being given, kind of ignoring the entire uh, queer 
female health until third year perhaps seems a bit remiss. Um, I also remember in MD1 having that amazing session on uh, how to ask about uncomfortable issues and asking males about erectile dysfunction, but things like dyspareunia or you know pain during sex is never once mentioned until women's health. Um, and really a lot of the women's sexual health in general is still aimed at heterosex um, and uh, you know women as baby making machines rather than um, you know sex being mutual pleasure or uh, any of the queer issues in general really um, so that's definitely a way that we could move forward as a medical school and from what I've heard from other sessions um, medical schools around Australia yeah one thing I really agree with you on there is actually I just remembered it from one of my friends during the oral contraceptive pill talk that we had in repro block um sorry i'm just like throwing it in here mm-hmm. it's the most relevant it was taught in the context of pregnancy and it wasn't talked in the context of like endometriosis or other like gynecological issues that it can be used to treat so a lot of queer women are on the oral contraceptive pill but it is not for contraception Mm. or health yeah it is a health yeah uh, I, I think I recall that um that session there was some mention of um PCOS and um, maybe some reasons why you would use it for pain management and that sort of thing for heavy periods um but I guess there's just always more room for reminding students that um, drugs aren't always used for the express purpose in which they were invented um, and certainly that's the case and we don't want gra- um, graduating medical students to assume as soon as they look at in the medical chart that the reason for the contraceptive pill is for contraception like there has to be um, an increased understanding um, and a desire to check in with the patient as to why they're actually using it. Mm, absolutely. I think, Sarah, you raised another really good point when we were discussing this earlier about um, the common motif from what we've seen in medical school and also from our survey is that queer women are really ignored by a lot of the um, a lot of the curriculum. Um, and in, you know what you're saying about the uh, most diseases we'd learn about in the male cohorts, so um, things like AMI. Present differently in women, we're not really taught about that kind of stuff. For um, you know, queer females, not only do you get the female disadvantage, you also get the queer disadvantage in terms of uh, doctors' knowledge. Yeah, definitely. So um, that's definitely a point of concern um, throughout, I guess, science in general. The idea that so much, so many of our research studies are based on male cohorts um, and generalizing beyond that cohort. Um, is not really a scientifically valid um, method. So um, MedFem um, is really excited, a bit of a promo here, that we're (laughs) doing a separate series on um, some health conditions that present um, abnormally, in quotations, um, in women. So things like MI, um, autism spectrum disorder, we're wanting to investigate um, those within women and see, um, I guess, reveal that they're not so much abnormal presentations, they're just different from the patterns that were taught in medical school. Um, So keep an eye out for that um, if you follow um, MedFem's productions. Um, Mm -hmm. We're pretty excited about getting that one on the road. Yeah, I think that's good. And I think we'd also be slightly remiss not to mention that a lot of the cohorts are white. So it is a Caucasian um, population. So it doesn't always, like you mentioned, generalize further. Mm -hmm. And also a lot of medicine has been done on, it's a bit more common in America, on like African-American populations Mm -hmm. where the ethics was very dodgy. And I think we also need to recognize that as well. Yeah, definitely. Would be remiss to yeah. not acknowledge that. I think um, both of our committees are very um, driven to provide um, intersectional perspectives on um, on health and on feminism um, and on queerness as well. Um, so 
I think that's a really good point, Bede, and I'm really glad you made it because um, we'd be remiss not to mention it, I agree. No, there is barely any real specific content in the course and what is is very tokenistic and stereotypical in a negative way. For example, men who have sex with men in saunas are at higher risk of STIs, drug use. Intersex is covered just through one congenital adrenal hyperplasia, PBL, with little guidance. No, we have very little LGBTQIA plus content and exposure within our MD. Even case-based learning around the issue is compromised by tutors not actually knowing what each letter in LGBTQIA plus stand for and definitions of each. No, LGBTQI health is only brought up in the context of focusing specifically on LGBTQI health and is otherwise never mentioned. No, I'm a doctor now and still experience significant homophobia by some of my colleagues. I feel like if there was sufficient visibility, this wouldn't be the case. No, UQ has a decent array of queer representation in cases, but are frequently tokenistic and only scratch the surface of what being a queer person is like. We would really like to ask you about the next section, which is kind of about um, uh, sexual health and how it's taught in medical school. Um, mm. And basically a lot of our respondents have said there is definitely not enough uh, content in medical school. Um, yeah. uh, and I guess, can you think of any ways that um, firstly, we can change this as med students, future doctors, or if there are ways we can change the system somehow. I know it's a bit of a hard question. Well, I know, and I've been trying to do this for 20 years, I think, <laughs> at one medical school. It's been a mm. real barrier, and I think it's mostly to do with this feeling like a niche issue. You know, it's a little bit like, say, refugee health or... Even Aboriginal health 20 years ago, it was very difficult to get it into the curriculum. And then the AMC, the Australian Medical Council, suddenly chose to prioritise Aboriginal health and say to mandate every medical school should have Aboriginal health teaching integrated throughout the course. And so all the medical schools had to then step up and start delivering. And I think that's what it takes. That's what it will take to improve LGBT inclusion in medical curricula is the AMC coming along and saying this is a vulnerable subgroup just like Aboriginal people, just like refugees, just like you know people who are recent immigrants. Um, we need to be prioritising this in medical training and not sidelining it because until now mostly it's been the med students in the last decade who've said hey we're not getting enough of this teaching and developing it themselves just like you're doing now you know adding it into their curricula if they have a, a student-led conference building it into their after hours education and I mean that's sort of letting the medical schools off the hook in a way because they're saying oh great the med students are doing it for us so we'll just move on to something more important but actually I think this is one of the most important areas to, to educate students about a population that has very clear evidence for disadvantage, for health inequalities, uh, for high rates of suicide, whatever we're talking about, we can pinpoint really major issues for our community and that needs to be taught. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm, <laughs> yeah, it's like we're getting it in somewhere, I guess, but you're right that it should be coming from further up. Um, yeah. uh, I guess well, so what we talk about in this section is a bit about how uh, it's often the queer members of the MD cohort itself are often not recognised or um, a lot of people don't, uh, when they speak about queer issues or understanding queer health, don't recognise that um, they're speaking to queer people when they're mm, in, the, yeah. in the MD cohort. Um, are the, the ways, uh, what can you recommend as ways to be good allies as medical students and future doctors with our peers and colleagues? Yeah, well, I think recognising that you've got queer people around you and you don't necessarily know who they are. Um, <laughs> always having respectful language because I've repeatedly, I've heard it myself and lots of my queer colleagues have heard disparaging comments, you know, in tea rooms. Uh, I used to do anaesthetics in a rural area and I would constantly hear negative terminology and, you know, really horrible statements about queer people when the patient was under the anaesthetic. Uh, 
and you know that's just not on it's not fair it's demonstrating really unethical behaviors actually so i think people whether they're straight or gay they should be able to uh, feel comfortable and safe in their environment and our straight allies could make a huge effort in that area by being always respectful always non-judgmental always inclusive yeah we know there there are these higher rates of smoking um especially mental health concerns and drug use within the lgbtq community and the advertising campaigns like you said haven't been targeting them specifically and are not um uh, useful in this population how do you mm. think we're best able to tackle these concerns without labeling them as queer issues yeah so i think it's mostly about understanding the context for what's driving that high level of smoking or alcohol or drug use or high level of mental health with each individual so not pathologizing not saying you're lesbian therefore you must drink a lot but reversing it and saying okay you're drinking a bit more than you should be what's triggering that you know are there any issues related to sexuality or gender identity that might be contributing and then it's a conversation with that patient about you know what what is it about your alcohol that might be connected and for some people there's nothing there's no connection and others they start unpacking a lot of uh, background trauma or uh, issues in the community that where they need to connect with other lesbian queer women and alcohol is the way to do that typically in our community it's been really difficult to find social events particularly for young women that don't relate to alcohol mm. and so that's partly to do with lgbt community needing to step up and understand how we um, run our events and how we engage with alcohol and drugs at our events and try to have a diverse approach to that uh, so creating a better culture in our lgbt uh, socialization um, but also with as a provider understanding what we're going to be doing in terms of health promotion to be very specific okay great um i guess um just another question is that we've really spoken very well about the importance of individualizing our approach um, to each patient whether they're queer or not um and i guess that feeds in really well to our uh, asking a really good sexual history and what are your top tips about doing that mm. so the sexual history i think it's all about well if we're talking sti risk and sexual history it's all about who does what with who and where it goes uh you know what body parts you have and using language that's appropriate for the person's identity you know checking in with them whether they use the word vagina or whether they use something else particularly if they're trans or gender diverse uh and then just literally you know being quite open about asking specific questions because i think people understand that we need to know this to be able to make it a proper assessment uh, but framing the questions around that and saying explaining why we're asking not just that we're being voyeuristic but we're checking in so that we can really make a good assessment and then do the right tests mm, yep absolutely it's very important um final query is uh if we're talking about the difficulty of um uh having specialized clinics maybe just because we think all primary care should be queer friendly mm. um but if you are referring people to things like mental health services that are specifically um queer friendly is there any ones you go to there are some lists around that mm. would include lgbt specific counseling for example uh mm. and some psychiatrists who are trans specialists so these are not always easy to find and sometimes they're not up to date but ospath the australian uh professional association for trans health have good lists on their website in each state and territory around trans inclusive psychiatrists psychologists and other uh, specialists so that's one way to find a good well reliable referral mm. i think it's harder for lgb inclusive mental health support there isn't such a clear demarcation and i think it's often 
uh, word of mouth that we send someone out to a patient, bring them back for feedback and we get good feedback. So then we keep using that provider. So I think that's often the way we have to do it, unfortunately. That marks the end of our discussion with Dr. Ruth McNair and also the end of our podcast on queer women's health. We'd like to express our most sincere gratitude to Dr. McNair for volunteering her time to share her professional insights into this topic. We hope you have all learned something today and please feel free to reach out to MedFem and MD Queer if you have any questions or comments. Thanks so much for listening and have a great day.